Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kowarik and Tara Vanerdusen, and together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space. And today we are back with episode 80 of Discover Ag, brought to you by Case IH. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. We are back with our favorite day of the week, you guys. It's Thursday. Tara and I look forward to this day all week long, (laughs) which honestly that is probably not a way we should live our lives. We should embrace and appreciate the other days of the week, but Thursdays are for discovering. So we can't help and not just favor it more. I hope everyone had a happy Easter weekend though. Tara and I did. We had, we kind of both had unconventional Easters. What was unconventional about yours? I feel like I don't know. Well, for everyone listening, you're in Florida. I mean, I've been visiting my in-laws. They live here. So I feel like it's still like a family. For everyone listening, the only family we have around us are Luke's parents. My family's obviously all in Montana. And then Luke's, both his siblings live out of state. And his parents were gone visiting one of his sisters. And so it was just us. And so we had like friends out and we grilled steaks. We actually grilled Good Ranchers, which is one of the sponsors of the podcast. So yeah, it was just different. I mean, we still went to church and stuff, but it was just different. It felt like Sunday hanging out kind of more than like Easter, I guess what I'm traditionally used to. Okay. And that makes a lot more sense. I didn't know what you, where you were headed with this, but it's funny you mentioned Good Ranchers. My mom had to watch our dog and a small kitten that like that Guinevere collected from the barn. And so when I gave her the cat and the dog to watch them for the weekend, I was like, here's Good Ranchers bacon. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Take the bacon and watch my cat and dogs. Um, but no, Good Ranchers has that really good deal going on right now where if you subscribe, you get free bacon for a year. So I was like, take my free bacon and watch my my animals. It's funny we're on this train of thought because the other day I was thinking that Easter is always a hard period for me because I'm Catholic and we have Lent, which means abstaining from meat on Fridays. And I actually talked about this on a podcast we were on the other day, but I was like, Fridays are the hardest day for me to eat because obviously as a ranching family, you know, protein, not just, you know, beef, but all the other animal proteins are on our plate almost every single day of the week, twice a week week, or twice a meal. Like we try and start our day with for breakfast and dinner. And so Friday rolls around in Lent and I'm like, I don't know what to eat. Honestly, you're like, I don't know what to eat. I'm so hungry. The next day rolls around Saturday and I'm like ravishing our fridge and our cupboards for like beef jerky or like I cannot get animal protein quick enough. On our way to the airport, we keep my car, like the snack in my car is beef jerky. And we ran out on the way to Albuquerque and we had an early flight. And I thought like my family was going to, I don't know, there was going to be an uproar in my car because I ran out of beef jerky. (laughs) All right, let's dive into the top trending topics in the ag and food space this week. Before we do that, we want to take a moment and thank our Discover sponsors, Culver's. We shared last week that Culver's is an April sponsor of the podcast, and we are so darn excited about this, you guys. All month long, we're going to be highlighting Culver's and their Scoops of Thanks Day, which takes place May 4th. So I'm telling you, it's right now. Take out your phone, take out your planner, whatever it is, write it on your forehead. I don't know. But mark down that May 4th, you want to visit your local Culver's and donate $1 to Ag Education. And in return, get a single scoop of fresh frozen custard. 
So one thing that we didn't mention last week is that $1 is donated to ag education and it actually stays local, which is really cool. So it's either donated to your local FFA chapter, or if you don't have one of those, then it will go to a local ag organization. So this is truly such a good cause to donate to. Like Natalie said, it takes place on May 4th at Culver's Nationwide. Spread the word, you guys. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Like Tara said, it's a really great cause. So we want to get as many people out there supporting as we can. All the information is in the show notes. All right, diving into our first article titled HelloFresh to Stop Buying Coconut Milk from Thailand Amid Claims of Monkey Labor. The meal kit company's decision follows an advocacy group's report claiming that some monkeys in Thailand are forced to climb trees and pick the fruit. Things I never thought I would be researching. Forced monkey labor. <laughs> like I just I didn't see our lives headed in this direction, but here we are. You know what's hilarious? If someone had told me a year ago this is what I'd be talking about, at first I'd have been like, no. But then I would have been like, yeah, maybe I could see that actually <laughs> makes sense. So I was researching this with, and I was on um, with my mother in law, and she was like, so can you tell me like a little bit about what your podcast is about? And I was like, well, this week we're covering forced monkey labor. So <laughs> she did not help her. I don't think she left the conversation being like, I don't understand what she does at all. But you say an advocacy group, let's just like call it what it is. It was PETA. PETA is behind this. No surprise. I feel like I posted about this in my stories, and I had a few people be like, I thought PETA, like, kind of fell off the face of the earth. But yeah, like you said, no surprises. PETA is the advocacy group behind it. I pulled out a quote from the executive vice president stating, the coconut trade uses social monkeys as chained up coconut picking machines, depriving them of any opportunity to eat, play, or spend time with their families. And like you said, (laughs) I know that this is not funny, but also I just kind of had a hard time not chuckling throughout reading this whole article and some of the things, the way they quoted it and framed it and phrased it. I don't know. The New York Times could not even confirm the allegations. Like they, there's a not a lot of like backing here. And what's crazy is like Walmart, Costco, like it's not just HelloFresh, tons. I think I saw something that was like 25,000 retailers in the United States are going to stop carrying. Um, United States and Europe have stopped selling Thai coconut brands because of these accusations. And yet the New York Times like couldn't even confirm it. So it's just kind of like, I don't know. I feel really bad for these companies that are like, I guess that's maybe my first question. How do you feel about it? Oh, how do I feel about it? I think I have an issue taking everything PETA says with a grain of salt, just knowing what they have said about the ag industry and being a rancher within it and the dairy industry yourself as a dairy farmer, I kind of just have a problem being like, as you said, you know, that none of the allegations have been informed. And I actually pulled out a quote, Mr. Edwin Wyke, the founder of Wildlife Friends Foundation Thailand, a nonprofit that runs a center for wild animals found in captivity, said that less than 1% of the country's coconut harvest is produced using monkey labor. And while he does not condone monkey labor, he felt that PETA's characterization of the conditions on Thai coconut farms made them appear more cruel than they are in reality. In most cases, he said monkeys live with farmers they work with and are treated as pets. And like you said, this is not the first time this has happened. Back in June, a ton of you know, very large retailers pulled out because of PETA. Um, you're right. It was 25,000 in the United States and Europe have stopped selling this Thai coconut brand. So they have weight and it seems to be more from fear of PETA than confirmation of the abuse. And I think I have an issue with that a little bit. 
Yeah, when I read like that the guy who actually runs like an organization that rescues monkeys was like it's not as bad as people say or as PETA is saying, it really made me question the whole thing because like I mean you use horses on your ranch. Like I don't I think I don't know. I just was kept going back to like I don't know, for some reason I kept relating it to horses. Like we use horses in all sorts of different forms of agriculture as like a part of our operation and they're like an integral part of it, not as like something bad. And so I, when I read it about how like the farmers like have the monkeys live with them, I was like, I just don't think this is just not as bad as Pete is making it sound. Well, it's interesting. You, I didn't correlate it to like how we use animals as ranchers, which makes sense again. Like obviously horses for any rancher are very well cared for, but yeah, they're part of like the working operation. And so to maybe it's apples to oranges, but maybe it's not, maybe it's apples to apples to compare that to how monkeys would be operated in Thailand kind of changes things a little bit. I It's funny you brought that up though because I did write down that, you know, my next, I guess, issue with this is if PETA wins and all the monkeys are removed, it's like, what's the alternative? And my mind goes probably to human labor. I mean, I don't know if I'm going out on a limb here, but I doubt the technology in Thailand for coking, coconut picking machines is probably high up. If it is, they probably wouldn't be using monkeys in the first place. And so... I just wonder then is PETA okay with like humans being forced to climb the trees and get by ants and fall out and break the boat is the alternative better than the monkeys again not condoning animal abuse or animal labor but I'm also not here as a proponent for child labor like not going to be you know standing for that well and it made me think about cashew milk and you know my issues with cashew milk like the way that cashew milk is produced or the ways that cashews are harvested I should say not just the milk any kind of cashews is horrendous like it absolutely like scars the workers their hands are deformed like it has like an acid in the the cashew that is terrible for human health and it's like forced labor camps that collect cashews and so i'm like we have an issue with like less than one percent of coconuts being harvested by monkeys that are live as pets with farmers taking care of them but we don't have a problem with cashews being harvested and like deforming the workers like I, yeah, it just it doesn't make any sense what some of these organizations like PETA place value on over other things. Well, and what's interesting about that that you bring up is I do think that a lot of consumers' decisions are made without being aware of the behind the scenes of what goes on to produce, consume, or not consume, but produce, harvest, grow, like the whole process for, before it happens to get the, to the grocery store. So I think to your point, people probably drink the cashew milk unknowingly that there is such, you know, heinous behind it. Yeah. Same thing with coconut milk. So I don't have an issue with PETA maybe bringing attention that, hey, 1% of coconut, like FYI, 1% of coconut milk is harvested potentially through monkey labor. You can take that information and make an informed decision how you want, whether that's to continue because it's such a low amount or stop buying because you stand for, you know, that's a hill you want to die on and and not support. I just have an issue with how PETA always rolls stuff out. Like they were proud to, in the article, it was stated that they sent Walmart over 86,000 emails oh to gosh. stop carrying that brand. It's like a form of harassment, in my opinion. And I was spent some time on the PETA website at the very bottom of this because they have a whole landing page for this monkey business. At the bottom of it, they have, they make it so easy. They have a pre-written email for you already. The subject is in there. The body is in there. 
You don't even have to source who it's to. All you have to do is put in your information. So all I had to do was hit Natalie Kavorik, my email and hit send. And I could send off that email in support of changing or, you know, whatever company probably went to who knows how many companies and who knows what's even said in that. Cause most people probably won't read it, read it. They'll just read those stuff before and say, Oh, of course I'll sign the petition or of course I'll send this email. And I'm just, I have an issue with the way they roll things out, I guess. I'm still laughing that you said monkey business. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know anything you said after that because I'm just still laughing. That's all I could think. I also think it's worth noting that you have to have a permit to have a monkey. Like there are regulations in place. There's just not like it is illegal to abduct a wild monkey. There's three different breeds of monkeys in Thailand that are used for like for farming. And it is pretty like heavily regulated. Like the fines and the prison time for not following these rules was like four years in a Thailand prison. So it's taken pretty seriously. I also think it's interesting that they targeted Thailand because it made me wonder is Thailand the only place that does monkey labor or once they take down Thailand, is it on to the next place? Which then makes me wonder like what's at stake for coconut milk and coconut oil. And like, where does Peter draw the line? I guess, essentially. Oh, I don't think they draw the line anywhere. I don't know if you remember years ago, they put out like a blast on almond milk because almond milk, quote unquote, according to Peter, like harms the bees. Like, I feel like there is no food on this planet that is going to like satisfy Peter. It's, I wonder what PETA people consume. Like, I wonder what the fridge of that spokeswoman at the beginning, the vice president, I wonder what's in her fridge. That'd be really interesting. I saw a PETA uh, activist one time who was an air-atarian. They tried to consume the least amount of food possible to sustain their life. And so they were called an air-atarian. I wish everyone listening to this podcast could see my face when you said <laughs> air-atarian. Go watch this on YouTube. <laughs> I'm go- for sure going down a rabbit hole of an airitarian once we're done recording. Good luck with that. I've done it and I wish you all the best. All right, moving into our second industry news piece you need to know this week, which is brought to you by our favorite Australian Western wear brand, Ringers Western. I have personally titled them as the epitome of country cool. So for anyone tuning in on the Ringers marketing team, if you want to steal that slogan, go ahead. I'm just falling more and more in love with them every day um, and every order that I'm making. I have ordered for them for a few months now. I think I've done three big shipments from them. I started with winter clothing and I just have been uh, scrolling the website the other day to do a spring order. I love the quality of their clothing. It's second to none. And I love that I can not only source practical clothing for the ranch, but also fun, cute items for off the ranch too. Can I just start by saying that when you posted your Instagram post with Tad, like I straight up like thought it was like model status. Like I thought it was an ad for them. And then I was like, oh my gosh, that's Tad. Don't (laughs) tell Tad that. (laughs) I'm definitely telling Tad. He was so (laughs) handsome. Um, You also, speaking of that, when I'm like, don't do that to Tad, you, everyone tune in, settle in for this story because I'm going to (laughs) break up our flow. We were together last summer and Tara has a radar detector in her car and Tad thought it was so cool and was like, I want to get one of those and asked Tara about it. And she sent him a link to buy it on Amazon. I was like, Tara. I mean, I just don't think if you like, why would you get a ticket if you could avoid it? I don't know. Tara's not a regular mom. You guys, Tara's a cool mom. I am a radar detector mom. (laughs) Okay, back to ringers. I was shopping on their website the other day and they had such a great stuff. As Natalie mentioned, they are an Australian 
based brand, but they do have a US website. And when you go to the website, it was really easy to be able to click over to like the US site. So make sure you check them out. You can find them at us.ringerswestern.com and be sure to use our special code discover to save you 20%. That is us.ringerswestern.com and use code discover, both of which are in our show notes. All right. Diving into our second trending topic title report suggests rampant greenwashing in the food sector from climate neutral certified beer to climate friendly beef jerky. A report from the changing markets foundation pinpoints examples of dubious climate claims. Yeah. So back in March, the European commission is really cracking down on greenwashing in product labels. And that is, I thought that was interesting that it was, that's, I don't know. They're just like really getting into exactly what the claims mean or what they don't mean and wanting more transparency from companies. So my first thoughts were finally someone besides us is saying what we are always saying on this <laughs> podcast. Maybe the EU has been tuning into Discover Ag. Totally. They have for <laughs> sure. So like Tara said, it's a European initiative. It's titled the Green Claims Directive. And the intent behind it is to, I mean, at its simplest form is to make green claims reliable, comparable, and verifiable, which I think that will be the hardest part of it. But they basically want companies to be more transparent about the climate impacts of their products. And it was in response, at least in part, to a 2020 study they did that found that 50% of green labels made environmental claims that were vague, misleading, or unfounded, and 40% of the claims were ubsubstantiated unsubstantiated which is crazy yeah i do you think it's like worth mentioning what like greenwashing is i have i googled it just to be clear on its definition it's a form of advertising or marketing spin in which green pr and green marketing are deceptively used to persuade the public that an organization's products aims and policies are environmentally friendly And it works. The article cited that 94% of Europeans say that protecting the environment is important. 68% agree that their consumption habits are adversely affected. And there are other stats to show that they're willing to spend more money if they think it is better for the environment. So at its core, it works. I know it almost goes back to the HelloFresh when you asked, like, you wondered if this article will sway people. I kind of, when you were saying that, asking that, I was thinking about this, like the numbers were really staggering of like how much more people are willing to pay for like a label that was, you know, climate neutral or whatever. And that it does work. It changes people's buying habits. So I thought the article started off very strong and then kind of went to hell in a handbasket. I I was wondering (laughs) that all they did after talk about, you know, the the importance of greenwashing, the theory behind it and how they want to crack down on it, which again, I'm all for, I think it's going to be easier said than done to regulate it because it just can be really difficult to pinpoint greenwashing and considering like the inconsistent standards we have and the terminology, I, I don't know how this will feasibly roll out, but I'm happy they're shining a light on it. So I thought the article started out really strong. And then after that, all I did, I feel like was they just picked on the meat industry. Yeah, there's a quote that said, among the worst offenders are meat and dairy companies whose products are responsible for the largest share of food-related greenhouse gas emissions. I know, I wrote this statement as BS. That's what I wrote in my notes. I actually was thinking at first when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that they're actually going to finally call out some of the plant-based brands that are greenwashing. And then they had that and I was like, oh my gosh. 
there's jokes on you, Tara. I know. So one of the things that I, um, that they really get into too on this is the carbon offsetting, like the companies that are just buying carbon credits. Like what does that mean? So they went after Bud Light because Bud Light says it's a climate neutral beer, but it is only carbon neutral because it bought offsets and it only bought the offsets for $50,000. So not a lot of money. I don't know. I would assume carbon credits would cost more than that. And, um, So I said there's no long-term impact or oversight on these carbon offsetting programs. And it kind of made me wonder, like Anheuser-Busch, why didn't you team up with farmers that produce your beer and source from farmers that are doing like regenerative ag practices and make it like a part of your entire marketing story instead of just buying carbon credits? Yeah, so I completely agree with that. I wrote down the same thing that I think it's really good that they're honing in on the carbon offsetting programs because I don't think consumers are aware when they see the like carbon neutral or we're climate friendly. I think initially, and I maybe I'm wrong, but I think people initially think that it's within their own supply system, that they're not aware that they're not changing any of their habits. All they're doing is like putting a boatload of money elsewhere, which as you noted, but was it Bush isn't even putting a boatload of money. They just put a few, like they threw a little coin in the collection can and like walked off. And I don't, not to say I have a problem with carbon, the offsets and that whole arm of the, I guess, initiative. I think that's fine if companies want to make it part of like their broader initiative and one arm of what they're doing. But like you said, I think it's important that we hold companies to almost a higher standard where they're including other things. And also I think they need to be clear about it. If that's all they're doing, then just let consumers know that that's what climate neutral means. So again, from the standpoint of the article and the idea behind it, I think that's good. I just still be interested to see how it all rolls out and how they regulate it. Basically regulation is kind of the, I feel like contention point for a lot of, when it comes to a lot of different things. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned regulation because this part of it, I feel like is really problematic. Obviously they want to add labels. (laughs) They want labels that list the negative climate impacts of different food. They want claims that have science-based, like evidence-based on the labels. And I just, I can't, I I don't think we can get through an episode of Discover Ag without talking about labels. So like, I just feel like by the time we get to like 2040, our entire, like I'm thinking of like a milk jug that's just going to have like label, 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 label all the way across it. It's going to be like lift up flaps so you can like have a label below a label. <laughs> yeah. Or like when you have a scroll and you open it and it drops to the floor and unrolls. Oh my like gosh. It'll just be like a scroll of claims. <laughs> and one of the claims in here that I thought was absolutely, I'm not going to lie. I was like, I don't even know what that means. It was about pork and the label they put on it was climate controlled pork. And in my mind, the first thing I thought of was like, oh, they keep like a thermostat and like the pig's housing. <laughs> like climate controlled. But apparently that is not what they meant. Obviously they meant like they are trying to control their impact on climate, I guess. I don't know. It was, I just was like, no wonder our consumers are so confused about what to buy and not buy if you have a label like climate controlled pork. It is interesting that, as you mentioned, labeling comes up as a problem and almost every single article we talk about because in the last one which i'm excited for our last guy will talk about but i'll point out how we got to a point in society because we didn't have clear labelings like there was no regulation about what went into the food and so you're just damned if you do and damned if you don't with labels like they're just frenemy and foe or friend and foe frenemy they're frenemies they're frenemies 
I, the last thing I want to mention is Amazon. I've talked about this before, but if you go on Amazon, they have a climate pledge friendly, like green label that gets put on a bunch of different products. I noticed it at Christmas this year when I was buying stuff and I right away was like, this is big time greenwashing. Like there's nothing about like what it is. And when I dove into this article, what I realized is that climate pledge actually has a lot more to do on Amazon with the size of the packaging. And I'm like, that is like, okay, smaller packaging is good. But in my mind, I was like, that probably just helps Amazon lower their cost on shipping more than it actually helps the environment. And so one of the uh, foods that Bloomberg was talking about, Bloomberg was really, that's who the article was. They were mad that beef jerky had the climate pledge on Amazon. And so they complained to Amazon and Amazon removed beef jerky's climate pledge. They're coming after our beef jerky, Natalie. Like, I know. <laughs> Not on Discover's Watch. I noted that too. And I thought it was interesting because again, Amazon was like, screw it. We're not going to deal with it. Kind of like with the HelloFresh where they're like, well, doesn't matter to us. Okay. We won't do it. Amazon was the same. Like instead of like deep diving into it or proving or anything, it's just easier for them to put their hands up and walk away with some of this stuff than it is to like get into the weeds of it essentially. I know. And isn't that so sad? Like if, if that beef jerky met whatever criteria that Amazon set up, shouldn't they be qualified for it? But instead Amazon, yeah, was just like, okay. And I looked sure enough that it was, it was gone. It was removed from that beef jerky. So the last thing I think I want to bring up before we move on is that the article was saying that this green initiative, along with like, you know, all the other ones Europe has done could potentially be the catalyst that also spurs the U.S. to approve stronger regulatory enforcements on greenwashing, which I thought was interesting given last week when we were talking about Italy and their ban on lab-based meat and crickets. And I mean, we said that EU kind of puts themselves on a pedestal. And if you, you can't go on social media, I feel like if you're in at least the food health space and not come across a real or short form video at TikTok that is talking about U.S. regulations of food versus European regulations. And so I do think it'll be interesting to see when U.S. does decide to like step up, you know, put themselves in the fighting ring and like put on some gloves and tackle this. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that that article kind of mentioned that. All right. Ups next is our third and final news piece this week. But before we dive into that, we want to remind you guys of our monthly giveaway that we do as a way to say thank you for sharing Discover Ag. We pick one person to send a Discover Ag swag bag to of all of our favorite things. So if you're listening today and you find yourself enjoying the podcast and the topics covered, please be sure to share to your social channels or leave us a review in the listening app. Because if you do, you will put a smile on our faces and you may just be the winner. All right. Our third and final industry news piece you guys need to know this week. Title Chipotle Mexican Grill backs zero acre farms, a developer of sustainable cooking oil. Chipotle Mexican Grill, one of America's largest fast casual food chains, has made an investment into zero acre farms, a developer of sustainable cooking oil. The investment is part of Chipotle's broader sustainability goals and was made through the company's Cultivate Next Fund, which launched last year. Yeah. And the, the whole point of Chipotle's like Cultivate Next Fund is to invest in emerging technology. Like they put revolutionize the restaurant industry. It's like, well, big claim. Well, so it's funny you used that word because I actually put that in my notes at the very end. And I actually meant it because I, so I have been doing a lot of personal work, uh, into seed oils, like just educating myself about them more, kind of studying them. I do feel like it is the latest health trend. We kind of talk about that all the time where something comes into the social media space now and everyone picks up on it and says it's 
either, you know, it's what's ruining the environment and we need to stop it or it's what's most healthy for us and we need to do it. Like there's always something in the health space that's trending. And I do feel like right now is seed oils. But I do feel like the further and further I've gone down this seed rabbit hole, if we fix seed oils, I do think it could be a revolutionary thing. And I wrote down, which is a very big word, but I think it may be. Like this stuff's pretty crazy. Yeah, I've been kind of dipping my toe in the seed oil conversation because I feel like it's just everywhere online. I was actually talking with some of my brother-in-law's friends this week when we were here in Florida about this. And they were like, why is that all over TikTok right now? Like this whole seed oil thing. And I was like, I think it's because all these people got like are on this health and wellness journey. A lot of them changed to things like plant-based, whether that's plant-based milks or other things. Then now they're like looking into the ingredients of things and the seed oils are in everything. And now they're having like, I don't know, like identity crisis of being like, oh my gosh, that's not, it's not as healthy of products as I thought they were. Yeah. It's crazy. Like you said, seed oils are in everything. That's why I feel like, again, I don't like the way Chipotle used the word. I mean, it was definitely for advertising and marketing, but if you really think about it, seed oils truly are in everything. And if they are as bad as people claim they are, which I am still diving into the science and I don't want to take a stance one way or the other, but I do feel like science and there's some data there to support it. And the fact that they are as rampant as they are, it's crazy to think how much we're consuming seed oils essentially. I know. Do you feel though, like you, like I personally, yes, when I eat out or when I eat like prepackaged food, I guess I would be consuming seed oil, but I don't cook at all with seed oil. Like I use butter for everything. I've never like had a can of Pam. Like I just use butter, melted butter for absolutely all of my like cooking oil needs. I have olive oil. It's olive oil is the only one that I use in my house. No, I did have vegetable oil. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in a household that had Crisco. Like I for sure remember the blue tub of my mom had for Crisco. Crisco. No, I've never had Crisco. My mom was always a pretty hardcore. I think because we were dairy, like my mom was always hardcore. Like you use butter for everything. And I feel like I carried that on. So do you want to dive into the Crisco rabbit hole or not? Because that's kind of the OG seed oil, which talking about when I said earlier, we got to the problem with Crisco because it rolled out in a time when there they didn't have to say what was in food. Like there was no labeling. I don't know if there was a governing body or not. If there was, they didn't have, you know, rules and laws around stating on food products what it was. And so that's how Crisco basically became so rampant is because they were they were the, actually the OG greenwashers, like with the way they marketed and positioned their product. And like you said, it took over animal products. Like that's how we lost lard and butter out of like general mass society using it is to Crisco, which is kind of crazy. Their marketing tactics in Crisco are crazy how they like went after housewives. And it was basically like, if it was like the underlying message was like, if you're poor, you use beef tallow and butter. And if you're rich, Mm -hmm. you buy Crisco. And it was a very like psychological marketing ploy to get these housewives to switch. And I don't, I don't know. It's kind of, it is wild when you like follow that trail of and like how, how they converted people. So I guess going back to the article, one thing I thought was interesting as we've already set up into this point several different times is that we do feel like seed oils is trending in the health space right now, which makes me really wonder my first thought actually, when I saw this about Chipotle backing this oil and like kind of inserting themselves into the seed oil conversation, 
I asked myself, does Chipotle really care about this? Or two, did they, were they smart enough? Did they have someone, whether it was like a marketing director or a CEO or someone that saw the writing on the wall of seed oils and was like, if we want to make ourselves important, if we want to make ourselves stand out, if we want to be seen as, I don't want to say like a leader in the health space, but just like talked about and seen in a positive light, maybe did they just jump on this seed oil bandwagon for that purpose? Do you think? I mean, knowing Chipotle's history and like the claims, like, I don't know if you remember when the Chipotle cup came out and it was like talking really bad about animal agriculture. Like, I mean, it has a long history of not being great for farmers, like sourcing pork only from the EU because they didn't like American pork, lots and lots of drama with Chipotle. And I did write, I know we talked about greenwashing in the last uh, article, but I wrote like, it feels a little like greenwashing to me what they're doing. And that like, even I liked the idea of the zero acre farms cooking oil. But like when I went on their website, I could not figure out like exactly what it was. I mean, ultimately I got that it is a sugar cultures are fed non GMO sugars and they eat the sugars and make healthy fats. That's like the single explanation on the website. And so and then it was obviously they said it's better for you and the planet, quote unquote, on their website. And I was like, is this? And it's also worth noting it's cheaper supposedly for restaurants. So did Chipotle see an opportunity to market themselves ahead of the seed oil and also save the, save a buck? So yeah, going back to the product Zero Acres Farms, I actually was introduced to them before I saw this article. I listened to their... I think their founder was a guest on a podcast and for the life of me, I cannot remember it because I wanted to go back and actually re-listen to it again now that we came across this article, but he was very well-spoken. He was very knowledgeable. I do feel like he was not like, I would not label him a greenwasher. I felt like he really understood things from both an agricultural side and a science side. I was honestly very impressed with him. It was only one article or one podcast, one exposure, but his first impression was positive. But like you said, the website does boast really insane stats. Like on their website, they say made by fermentation, not deforestation. Cultured oil uses 85% less land than canola oil, emits 86% less CO2 than soybean oil, and requires 99% less water than olive oil. Those are substantial, substantial claims to stand on. Again, going back to how it's made, from what I gather, it's essentially like a sourdough. So mm-hmm. it's a live culture and you feed it, like you said, they say they're feeding a cane sugar. I don't know if it comes with like organic or like what kind of cane sugar they are going to claim it is, but they're just feeding it the sugar and then the byproduct from it, instead of like sourdough is the dough you use, the byproduct from this fermented oil creature is this good oil that, that they then press um, and bottle. Yeah, it's similar to cultures in yogurt. Like it compared it to anything that you're using cultures for to be able to produce something. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad you brought up the deforestation because I think that, I felt like that was a talking point they were really pushing is that vegetable oils produce um, produced today contribute to record rates of deforestation. That I, that's where. I think it's a really good idea, I, but I just felt like they were like, what all points can we hit on that we know people are like conscientious about right now? And so it's like, oh, deforestation, like put that in there and just throw in anything healthy fats. Like I must have read the word healthy fats like 10 times when reading this article and how many more healthy fats it had than all, uh, um, olive oil or avocado oil. And so while I liked it, I just, so it's interesting though that you really liked the founder, his like episode on that podcast. Like it makes me think there's like a little bit of a disconnect there from him to like what their website marketing is. 
Well, again, like I said, it was only one interview. So obviously when you listen to someone, you know, for 20 or 30 minutes, you can get a much different taste than you can over, you know, several different months of ads they roll out and different things the product does over like a year's time span of like their actions. But this brings up for me, I guess, a point we've talked about before, both on this podcast and when we're guests on other podcasts, is that I do feel a little bit sympathetic for companies because if you don't play the brand, tag word, slogan, marketing game, you're not going to sell because every single other company is. It's like I talked to a a person at a direct-to-consumer beef business and they were like, we absolutely would not play the no antibiotics in our meat game. And um, I can't remember what other claim it was, maybe like natural or something. But they're like, we have to because every other competitor of ours is putting it on the label. So if we don't, our consumers will not buy our product because they will think we have antibiotics and that we're not natural. And so I do think that maybe the person that's copywriting this, you know, Zero Acres Farm website knows a little bit that it is playing into it. But it's a startup, right? Like if they want to get this into the market, if they want to sell it, it's like you got to play the game. Don't hate the player, hate the game, essentially, you know? No, I agree. I think we've probably talked about this, but like, it's like the gluten-free and, or like when something's dairy-free or like, it's like every label, but if you don't have it, then consumers think your product does have it. So sometimes you have to put these unnecessary labels on things, whether you want to or not, to just have a competitive, not even a competitive advantage, just so you're on a level playing field. Mm -hmm. Which was, I was excited going back to our second article with the greenwashing, the article mostly talked about how it benefits the consumer side. But it did briefly highlight how if we can regulate greenwashing and the marketing, it makes it a level playing field for the businesses. And I was like, that is to me is almost just as important as the consumer understanding, because I do think it's like the chicken or the egg. Like if the company doesn't have to put on that brand, those labels or make those claims, the consumer isn't going to be confused or have to, you know, dissect them. And so it's like, if we can make the evil play level playing for the brands where they don't have to play the game, I think it then in turn creates a cycle where the consumer doesn't have to keep up and there's not the fear or the misinformation. And it just makes the whole cycle better. Like if we change how the brand has to advertise. Yeah, I agree. But I I think it's with you. It's like, which comes first? Like, that's going to be the hard part is figuring out how to navigate it. So I think my last point on this is like, as I've been diving into the seed oils, they say the best ones are olive, coconut, and avocado, like in the grand scheme of things, because it has a lot to do with the linoleic acid and those have the least amount of linoleic acid. But then if you dive into like, okay, so which one out of those three do I want to buy or like have for our family? It goes into how like avocados are bad because of like the monoculturing or the exporting. And then, you know, olive oil is bad because of all the water it uses. And then you don't want a coconut because now that's built like it's built on the back of monkeys. We just, you know, talked about that. And so it, for me, it kind of came this whole full circle thing where it's like, again, how as a consumer, I do feel like there are so many things to consider And I can see sometimes why we fall into almost not wanting to know or understand the deep layers of how our food is produced. Like sometimes I can see how it benefits to just be really blind and want to fit into that box of like good, clean, fine. Like I'm just going to buy zero acres fermented oil and not the other ones because it's like, by God, it's easier. It's just information overload. I think sometimes in the world we live in too is like all of these things, like how are you supposed to make an informed decision when there is it's so, I mean, as we always say, it's so much more complicated. Like it's just not this straightforward black and white answer. And then I think that the consumer just becomes overwhelmed and is like, I don't even know what to buy anymore. And Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. And then we're I all going to become Eritarians and survive yeah. there. <laughs> I was going to say, we should all just not have seed oils and just use butter and beef tallow. Yeah, and moral of the story is hashtag animal products. That's it. That is the end. So thank you guys for listening to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We will see you guys next week. 